Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 18 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Gary LePouk, a retired commercial pilot, an aviation attorney and crash investigator, and an expert in celestial air navigation. Originally from Chicago, LePouk taught himself celestial navigation at only 15, majored in aeronautical engineering, and became a commercial pilot in 1972. A certified flight instructor with over 6,000 hours of flying time, in 1978, LePouk used celestial navigation to fly a single-engine Cessna 172 across the Atlantic from Newfoundland to the island of Santa Maria in the Azores and then on to Portugal. LePouk practiced aviation law in California for over 20 years, defending airlines, aircraft manufacturers, engine manufacturers, flight schools, and avionics suppliers in the process. But today's episode is about the history and development of celestial navigation in commercial aircraft, and why, even in this age of GPS, celestial air navigation is still in limited use today. LaPook joins us from Thousand Oaks, California. Gary, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, thank you, Bruce. It's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to having an interesting discussion with you. First off, uh, let's get to the very basic question. How do you define celestial navigation? It's a navigation method that takes advantage of uh, accurate knowledge about the positions of celestial bodies, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. And from that, we can make, make those uh, bodies work for us and, and use that information to figure out exactly where we are. It allows a navigator with the proper training and instruments and, and, and information to, by measuring the height of one of these uh, celestial bodies, say the sun, for instance, how high it is above the horizontal, and then doing some computation and figure out uh, where he is on the face of the earth. If you measure just one observation of the sun, for instance, you get a line, and you know you're somewhere on the line. Similar to saying you know you're on Main Street, okay. but you don't know exactly where. Um, if at the same time you can take an observation of another object that's close to right angles to the first, although more than 30 degrees is usually sufficient. You end up drawing another line on your chart, which is like drawing another uh, intersecting street on your map. And where the two lines cross, you must be at that intersection, like being at the corner of 5th and Main Street. Let's get to the history of using celestial navigation in, in aircraft. And I noted that from one of the histories that you actually sent me, in 1918, Princeton astronomer Henry Norris Russell uh, spent several months at Langley Field, Virginia, testing aeronavigational aero instruments under the auspices of the Army Bureau of Aircraft Production. And his best results came with a marine sextant equipped with a bubble level mounted above the telescope tube. So that's what became known as a bubble sextant. That's correct. So that was right after uh, World War One, And I assume in World War One there was no attempt at celestial navigation well, actually, there was. Um, oh, there was. Zeppelins okay. uh, operated by uh, Germany dropping bombs on London used celestial navigation. So, yeah, there was uh, use of a limited amount of celestial navigation. 
How would you define a bubble sextant? A, a sextant, uh, and probably everybody's seen an image of a, a marine sextant, kind of triangularly shaped with an arc along the bottom. And it's got a series of mirrors and very precise machining and a very precise scale. That my, By manipulation, you can measure the angle between any two objects very precisely. And you do that by looking through a telescope at a mirror, and the mirror is angled to uh, allow you to see the movable mirror called the index mirror. Next to the first mirror called the horizon mirror, you can see the horizon. And by manipulating the uh, arm, you change the angle of the index mirror until it reflects an image through the horizon mirror that lines up with the horizon. And as soon as you've done that, you can read the scale of how much the arm had to be moved in order to make those two images come together. And when you do that, you're very accurately measuring the angle of the uh, celestial body in relationship to the visible horizon. That's the regular sextant. Doesn't work very good in flight, however, for a number of reasons. One, the horizon is way below you. So if you're using the horizon as your horizontal reference mark, it's actually well below horizontal. So you end up measuring a larger angle than you would expect. And we have a correction for that. It's called dip. In fact, you have to use that even on a ship with a marine sextant. But from a ship, the corrections are very small, a couple of miles, and they're well tabulated in a, in a correction chart. With the dip correction from an aircraft, uh, it varies with your altitude. The higher you are, the further down you're looking towards the visible horizon. And in order to get a proper correction for that, you have to know your altitude very precisely. And with uh, the normal uh, altimeter in an aircraft, uh, you don't know that precisely enough to guarantee you get the correct altitude to use to make your dip correction. And the other reasons, of course, is that if you're above clouds, you can't see the visible horizon. So you don't have that to use as a reference mark. Other reason for a bubble sextant, and this is an advantage to aerial celestial navigation, is that you can use it when the horizon's not visible. For instance, when you're using a marine sextant on a ship, you can use it all day long because you can see the horizon. But once it gets dark, the horizon disappears and you lose that reference mark. So for marine navigation with a marine sextant, you can take observations of the sun and the moon, sometimes planets. But to see stars and actually get a fix, you can only do it twice a day at sundown and sunrise at twilight when the celestial bodies are visible at the same time that the horizon is visible. But once it gets darker in the evening till the horizon disappears, you're done taking observations. Producing two fixes a day is usually sufficient for a boat, which might cover only 100 miles during a day. But for an airplane, um, that's not uh, often enough. A flight might only last a couple of hours or 10 hours, or it might be in the entire period night or the entire period of day. So you need to be able to obtain fixes much more frequently so you don't get lost and run out of gas. The celestial navigation is a universal aid to dead reckoning. Correct. But what is dead reckoning for the uh, for the listener? <laughs> <laughs> well, this whole question of navigation is, you know, modern people just turn their phone on and 
and you know ask for the directions to the pizza place that you just <laughs> us how to get there. So navigation is probably a foreign thought for most younger people today. But for until well, I'll say the last 20 years, uh, navigation was a, a big deal, especially for ships where there's no landmarks and uh, and also for flying. So navigation is the conducting a ship safely from one place to another place, utilizing all available uh, information uh, to make sure the trip is completed safely. That's one of the old definitions of navigation. It used to be an old joke that if you wanted to fly to Europe, all you do is have to turn to the composite E for Europe, and you can't miss Europe. It's really hard to miss Europe. It's very big. But if you're trying to hit a little island, uh, that ain't going to make it for you. Let's say you were standing on the edge of a desert, and you know exactly where you are. And you look on your map, and the nearest water hole is 10 miles straight east from where you are. And you're very thirsty. So knowing where you started from, you figure you should walk straight east for 10 miles, and you'll find the water hole. So you start walking as carefully as you can, maintaining straight east with your compass. But then after walking 10 miles, because you've been counting your paces, there's no water hole. And now what do you do? Well, the problem is that there's always some inaccuracy in dead, that's called dead reckoning. Walking a straight line for a certain distance and figure out where you should be based on that information. So based on your computation, you should be 10 miles straight east from where you started. However, compasses aren't always accurate. You might have had to walk around a, a big rock to the right. You might have walked a little bit slower than you thought. You might have walked a little bit faster than you thought. So the further you walk from your starting position, the less and less accurate your determination of your position is. You may be exactly where you think you are, but you may be off to one side or the other. We may have gone too far, not quite far enough. That would be dead reckoning, but you can see that the accuracy, accuracy of your position degrades the further you go. And sometimes it'll be accurate enough that it doesn't matter. First example, if you're looking for a large lake, it might not matter if you're a mile off to the right or two miles off to the left, you'll still find the big lake. But if you're just looking for a small water hole, dead reckoning for 10 miles across the desert might not be accurate enough. But you mentioned about the jokingly mentioned E for Europe on the compass. So what about Lindbergh when he actually made his crossing? Obviously, he had to use a compass. What did he use uh, for his what was his primary navigational tool? Did he, did, did he do any uh, celestial navigation? Not on that flight. It was dead reckoning. He carefully laid out a great circle course, which we don't really have to get into the details of that, from where he left to Ireland. And he worked out, based on the weather forecast that he had, what the winds would do to his track across the ocean and made allowances for it. And also, as you travel across the face of the Earth, the compass points in different directions. doesn't always point straight north. And the difference is called variation. The compass points to magnetic north, which is not the same as the true north pole. So as you move to different positions on Earth, the compass has a, a discrepancy between true north, which would be the north pole, and magnetic north. For instance, where I live in California, my compass needle points 13 degrees east of true north. In Chicago... Uh, it points straight north. On the east coast, it points, the compass would point like 15 degrees to the west of true north. 
And same thing as you're crossing the Atlantic. And Lindbergh took it, took this knowledge and made sure he, every hour, I think every hour or so, he changed the direction he was heading by his compass to allow for this changing variation. And he also had worked out what way he had to point the airplane to the right or to the left to counteract expected crosswinds. And it turns out his uh, dead reckoning position was very accurate. He hit the coast of Ireland just a couple miles south of where he had planned to, which was exceptionally good dead reckoning for such a long flight. And so and from there it was a hop, skip, and a jump down the Seine River to Paris. So why did he uh, uh, choose not to use any sort of celestial navigation as a as a you know kind of a supplement supplement to his dead reckoning? Well, he was pretty busy flying the airplane. <laughs> Plus, he had very limited okay. visibility out of the airplane. You know, he couldn't even see straight ahead. No, yeah, he had right. to have a periscope because there was a large fuel tank in front of the cockpit, which had to be placed there because of the weight of the fuel. And so he had very limited visibility. So he didn't have much choice. However, on later flights, uh, when he traveled uh, in South America and other places with his wife, Anne Marl Lindbergh, uh, they do celestial navigation. His wife was actually the navigator on those flights. Um, so yeah, he got used to using celestial navigation after that first flight. And so what about, uh, I know you're an expert on Amelia Earhart and, and, uh, we'll have to have you back uh, to discuss that at another time, but, uh, on her solo transatlantic, uh, flight, uh, a few years later, did she use celestial navigation? No, she also used dead reckoning. And this shows the other <laughs> end of the, uh, accuracy of dead reckoning. She was aiming for Paris, and she ended up in Northern Ireland. She landed near uh, Londonderry, Northern Ireland, and about five years ago, I stood on the exact spot in that field where she touched down in 1932, and she had to ask, where am I? Good gosh. That's amazing. And you were actually out there. Yes. And is there any uh, record, uh, monument erected uh, to that feat in that field? Yes, there is. There's a... Uh, a, a cross on the ground made out of stone, and that's the spot where she landed. But she was happy to see land. She had trouble with her exhaust manifold, I believe, and so she decided to land because she was worried about deterioration of the exhaust manifold. So she didn't make it to her destination of Paris, which is what she was aiming for, but it was still an amazing accomplishment. Each uh, celestial ob observation yields one line of position. I, I think you kind of mentioned that uh, yes. a bit earlier. And a line of position, how would you, parenthetical definition for a line of position is simply what? Just a, a line that you know you're on or very close to based on your observations. And let me give you an illustration. Um, you know, a sextant measures an angle above the horizon, above the horizontal. And... Let's say you're walking around on the ground and there's a tall building in the distance. And we know as we walk towards a tall building, we have to tilt our head back higher and higher to look towards the top of the building. And that's just apparent to everybody. Now, if you can measure that angle very accurately from the base of the building to the top of the building, and you know how tall the building is, and by using trigonometry, um, you can calculate how far you are away from that building. That makes sense? Right. Okay, but if you, and based on knowing the distance from that building, if that building's marked on your chart and you know the distance away from it, you could draw a circle around that building 
with that certain radius based on your computation, and you know you have to be somewhere on that circle. And that would be a line of position, a circular line of position. You know how far you are away from that building. Now, that won't tell you exactly where you are because you could be anywhere on that circle. But let's say there's another building in a different direction, and you do the same process with that other building. And then you draw a circle based on the distance from that other building where the two circles cross is where you have to be. That's the only place you could measure those two altitudes with that sextant at that time. Those would be two lines of position or circles in this case where they intersect, you have to be there, and we call that a fix. During the day, it's not it's not so easy to get a fix, but you, but you can sometimes use the moon or Venus uh, during daylight hours to obtain a line of position. Yeah, sometimes. the uh, You can see the sun all day long and draw lines of position uh, based on your uh, the altitude you measure with your sextant of how high the sun is above the horizon. So you can get those all during the day. And as the sun moves, by the way, you can uh, draw different lines of position and the azimuth, the direction you're looking at towards the sun, will be changing. And the lines of position, when you draw them, run perpendicular to the azimuth that you're looking at the sun. So as the sun moves across the sky, you can draw additional lines of position and they'll cross and they'll give you a fix However, since they're measured at different times, the you have to what we call advance the first line of position based on your dead reckoning to make it cross the second line of position. It gives you what we call a running fix. It's not as accurate as a fix that's done simultaneously, but it's a lot better than no fix at all. Now, if you can shoot two bodies during the day, and typically it would be the moon and the sun, you can get a fix all day long by taking additional observations of both the sun and the moon for about... Half the month, the moon and the sun are too close together that the azimuths don't differ enough between them to provide a good fix. 90-degree interception angle or inter- intersection it would be ideal. And the further it gets away from that, the less and less accurate the fix will become. When it gets down below about 30 degrees, it provides a large area of uncertainty where the two lines cross. So you need the sun and the moon to be spaced in azimuth, again, 90 degrees would be perfect. And because of the moon's path across the sky, about half the time it's too close to the sun. But about half the, the month it's a visible in a good location that you can get fixes during the day between the moon and the sun. And the faster an aircraft is traveling, the more difficult it is to use uh, celestial navigation or cell nav is what you, I think that's the term that the pilots use for right. cell nav. Right. So the more difficult it is to use cell nav, is that correct? Um, it's just that you have to find a method to do the computations because there's quite a bit of computation involved in this in a way to do it very rapidly so that uh, by the time you're done doing the computation, you haven't traveled on another couple hundred miles. Um, shipboard navigation, because they move so slowly, the technique is to, and again, you can only get a fix normally at sunrise or sunset. When it starts getting dark out in the evening and the stars come out, you go on deck with your sextant and you measure two or three stars at different azimuths while you can s- still see the horizon. And then after it gets too dark, you can't see the horizon anymore. You go below, have a cup of tea, maybe have dinner, and then sit down, do your computations. 
and you put a fix where you were at, at the twilight. And it's no big deal. There's no big rush to do that. You're not going to be land for another month or so. So the how quickly you get that fix on the chart is not that important. If you're flying an airplane at 450 knots, which is what most airliners fly, and it took you an hour to do the computation, you'd be 450 miles away from where you actually took the observations. <laughs> so that'd be no good. <laughs> you'd be, um, you're in bad shape, right? Okay. Yeah. So they had to develop techniques that allowed the computations to be done rapidly. And the the way it's done in, in flight is you do the computations in advance. You can plan a fix whenever you want one. And uh, so you do. You uh, Usually on the hour, by the way, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and so on. And you do the computation in advance, saying, well, I should be about here. And based on me being where I think I'll be, I'd be measuring the these heights for these different stars. And then when the time, and you do all the computation based on that. And when you get there at say 11 o'clock, you take out the sections, you shoot the three stars. And five minutes later, you have a fix on the chart. So it's, it's, that's, that's what makes a flight navigation uh, different than uh, marine navigation. And so when did uh, celestial navigation first come into use in commercial passenger-carrying aircraft? Well, I'd say about 1919. There's a, uh, a convention of the European governments about requiring navigators. This came out in 1920, and they required a navigator on all commercial flights. They were going to travel more than 108 miles over the water or 220 miles, I think, over land. So navigators were part of the regulations going back to 1920 in uh, Europe. Uh, take us back to the heyday of celestial nav- navigation, not uh, not 1919, but let's say after World War II in the late 40s, early 50s. But just take us back to the days when air travel was a luxury and people dressed up for it and anticipated it and, and basically worshipped the pilots who flew these propeller-driven <laughs> aircraft. And you know that's true. <laughs> you laugh, but it's... It's, it's nice when they call you captain, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, actually, to go back to when passenger, transoceanic passenger travel, uh, first started in 1936 with Pan Am flying boats out of California to Hawaii and then on to the Orient. And that was all done by celestial navigation. And commercial passenger service across the Atlantic didn't really get started until 1938. It was done with flying boats, and that's because there were no uh, airports out there available. And uh, 1938, they started commercial flights across the, United, across the Atlantic. There weren't very many passengers, by the way. Uh, most of the revenue for the airlines at that time was made carrying mail because they had contracts with the post office and their subsidies and all that that made it possible. So mail was what paid the freight, so to speak, for the uh, flights across the Atlantic, and passengers were an added a bonus. So the after that, well, so celestial navigation was it from the very beginning of transoceanic flight. But prior to that, uh, we forget that uh, the Brits were flying planes all the way across their empire down to India and Australia. And they're doing that with celestial navigation uh, because there are no radio navigation aids at the time, nor were there any uh, accurate charts. You know, another way. Uh, pilots navigate in the United States and the rest of the world. You have an accurate chart, and we call it pilotage. You keep looking ahead for landmarks that you identify on your chart. 
and that's how you can stay on course. But that requires having an accurate chart, and we're talking about uncharted land in Africa and Asia, South America, and there are no radio nav aids at that time, so they had to use celestial navigation. Now, going into the heyday that you're talking about, when uh, transatlantic travel started with uh, land aircraft, was basically after World War II. During World War II, a lot of airports were built to support the war effort, and that's where you got the airports uh, in uh, Iceland and Greenland and uh, the Azores and Bermuda, and this allowed the use of land airplanes. And so, uh, you know, our B-24s and our B-17s and all the C-47s and all that were land airplanes, and they had these airports to operate off of so they could actually jump across the pond without being a flying boat. After the war, these airports were available for commercial aviation, and that's when they started carrying a large passenger load. Now, the trouble is always the westbound flight, because westbound across the Atlantic, you're almost always into a headwind, and the aircraft didn't have the range to make it nonstop from Europe to the United States against the headwind. So that's why you ended up landing in Goose Bay or Gander in Labrador, or if you're further starting from further south in Europe, you stop at uh, Santa Maria in the Azores and then jump from there to Bermuda and then to the United States. Uh, so that would be the, the heyday of celestial navigation. All this was done by navigators using celestial navigation. That was the most accurate method of navigation. That was the GPS of that era. And they started out with astrodomes. We call an astrodome mounted in the roof. Um, and explain what an astrodome is. It's not where the Astros play baseball. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. In order to take celestial observations, you've got to be able to look outside and up in the sky. So you want to have a window in the ceiling to look up. If you just have a flat window on the roof of the airplane, it limits the uh, how much of the sky you can see. You can see maybe from straight up to maybe 60 degrees above the horizon. So say from 60 up to straight up, you can have a clear view, but you can't see stars that are lower. And that's probably where the stars are that you want to see. So you want to be able to stick your head up above the airplane so you can look out pretty much horizontally. And the way they did this, they made a dome that fit in the roof of the airplane. And you put your section up in this dome. And it was a half a dome. It was a dome. And that allowed, since the section itself was now above the fuselage of the airplane, you could use it to measure stars that were at low angles above the horizon. So that's an astronaut made out of plastic. If you ever go to an air show, World War II airplanes, you'll see them sitting on top of the C-47s and C-46s and things like that. And it worked real good. And that's what they used during the war. Even uh, And they also had them in like the first pressurized one, the the uh, Lockheed 1049, which was, became the uh, Constellation. However, uh, since the Connie was pressurized, it turned out there might be a problem with using astrodomes. And the astrodome was probably about, uh, say, three feet across, three feet in diameter. Uh, there was one occasion uh, when a navigator was taking a sight with his head and shoulders up in the astrodome, and the astrodome broke. And because the aircraft was pressurized, the pressure blew him out through the hole in the roof, and he was lost. Mm. And that didn't make navigators real happy. So the initial uh, way to deal with that was to put a harness on navigators, basically holding them down so in case an astrodome blew out again, 
uh, the guy wouldn't be sucked out. As far as I know, that only happened once, but it's uh, it was a good idea to get rid of the Astrodome anyway. Uh, one is it caused uh, extra drag in the aircraft. So the uh, so they came up with a different method of taking uh, sights. That was the periscopic sextant. The main one we know about, of course, is the Colesman periscopic sextant, which is developed in the United States. But the Brits also had a, a similar periscopic sextant for use in their aircraft. And the way this works, there's a hole in the roof of the cockpit, and it's a mounting plate that will hold a bubble sextant. And the bubble sextant has a tube sticking up like a periscope on a submarine. And it fits up to this, this opening in this mount in the roof of the airplane. And so now the the observing end of the periscope is above the, the fuselage. So you can see observations all the way down to horizontal or straight up. And the navigator stays inside. He's not going to get sucked through this little hole. It's only about, uh, say, three inches in diameter. It made it much easier. So that's uh, that replaced the Astrodome. Uh, they replaced those on the on the Super Connie with the Astrid with the uh, sextant mount and the uh, Coltsman periscopic sextant. So yeah, so that so that's that's where the Astrodomes went. What about uh, the? Give us an idea of the, what the navigator on a transoceanic transatlantic flight, uh, let's say from Gander to Shannon Ireland, might be doing an, a half hour before the takeoff, and then when would he actually? make the first celestial fix once you know the time of departure and you plot out the chart on the uh, correction you plot out the route on the chart and you measure the distances and you have an idea of how fast the airplane is going to go based on its cruising speed and the predicted winds you can predict by dead reckoning where you should be every hour and so you mark that on the chart you know estimated time arrival at at this point or this point see every hour apart and even before you take off, then you can start doing your computations for that first fix. You can predict by dead reckoning uh, where you're going to be every hour along that flight track. Uh, you can start doing the actual astronomical computations even prior to takeoff. So that, as I said before, you want to do the computations before you actually take the observations. And you can do that anytime uh, when you know the uh, the time of departure gets up with this uh Sextant takes the observations, marks them on the chart. He has a new fix, and then he draws the line from the new fix to again the next intermediate fix, the next place he's aiming for. Measure the angle and correct the heading. And based on that, you can also calculate what the winds were and, and other pieces of information. But after you take that first fix, then you can start planning the next fix. So, are today's airline pilots still trained in celestial navigation? Nope. <sighs> You know, uh, flight crew members cost a lot of money. It's the second highest cost for an airline after their cost for fuel. And as time has gone by, they've tried to eliminate flying positions. There used to be five people, five, yeah. You used to have a pilot, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, a navigator, and a radio operator. And the salaries for these people were quite expensive. And so as time went by, they tried to eliminate each of these positions. The early radio operators, um, they're nothing like modern radios where you just punch in the frequency you want. You had to adjust dials and listen to watch meters and, and all kinds of things like that. And also use Morse code to tap out messages. So that was a full-time job for a, a 
radio operator. Um, as the years went by into the late 1940s, early 50s, they came up with much easier to operate radios as you just go click, click, click and choose different frequencies. And so now, and also switch to voice communication rather than Morse code. So this allowed the pilots to actually do the talking on the radio. So the flight, so the radio operator went. The next guy to go would be the navigator. He costs a lot of money to keep in the airplane. So the airlines were looking for other ways to navigate that wouldn't require a navigator. The regulations required then and still require now that an airplane must be able to fix its position every hour. And if the pilots can't do it themselves, you have to have a navigator on board. So the, there's a quest to come up with automatic equipment that could find these position of the aircraft, and it could be simple enough to operate by just the pilot, and then you could eliminate the position of the navigator. The first time this was allowed was in 1966, I believe, or a little bit after that, when they came up with what's called inertial navigation. And inertial navigation is a computer that keeps track of all the bumps and jolts and, and whether the airplane bounced to the right or bounced to the left and how fast it was going. And basically does a job of dead reckoning by allowing for all these things, but does it much more precisely than a person can do uh, doing dead reckoning on a chart. And this was first deployed in the Boeing 747, and they were first uh, built in 1966. They're very expensive. They cost uh, quarter, at that time a quarter million dollars each, and the Boeing 747 had three of these devices. So it was very expensive, but the airlines looked at that and said, well, it's, we pay that cost once and we get rid of the navigator, we save a lot of money. So starting with the Boeing 747s in the late 60s, they started coming up with this, this new equipment, the inertial navigation. And by the uh, late 70s and sometimes in the 1980s, other airplanes started getting the same equipment. Uh, older airplanes that didn't come originally equipped with the inertial navigation kept navigators for a longer period of time because it didn't make sense to pay to put that exotic equipment in an old airframe. But the navigators were pretty much all gone by the end of the 70s and some airlines probably in the early 80s. Let's go back and look at uh, where CellNav is most useful in a geographic sense. I mean, obviously at sea, also over deserts, I would think, uh, over very remote areas like uh, like over Siberia, for instance, where there are no landmarks whatsoever. Uh, flying over uh, unknown territory where you don't have very accurate charts, uh, CellNav was very useful. The, uh, like, again, like Africa and Asia and South America uh, and Canada also. And uh, this continued on until radio nav aids uh, were invented. And even after that, because uh, radio nav aids cost a lot of money to operate, cell nav has uh, lots of advantages for military use. Um, and, of course, they're not constrained by cost, having crew members. The, uh, you know, all the other... Uh, radio navigation systems, including GPS, which is so ubiquitous today, can be jammed or degraded by enemy action. And uh, so the by having celestials uh, a way to navigate, uh, that can't be jammed by an enemy. Uh, we all know that the uh, Soviet Union and China and the United States have developed rockets that can go up in the sky and knock out the GPS satellites 
and make that system go away. In addition, you can jam them with local jammers. Um, so you want to have a, a system that's immune from interference. Selenav is it. In addition, it's passive. It doesn't send out. Yeah, Selenav is not susceptible to being jammed or uh, having the GPS satellites shot down by an enemy. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a firm backup. In addition, uh, uh, if you have to use radar in your aircraft to nav- navigate, which you can do, to, it's called ground mapping mode. However, that's sending out a signal in your radar, a signal from your airplane will attract anti-aircraft missiles. So it's really good for our B-52s and B-2s and the KC-135s. They have to refuel them to be able to fly uh, with celestial navigation. Okay, so let's imagine... Uh how SELNAV might be used in the event of a horrific, uh, I mean, 2020 has been such a horrible, <laughs> it's been such a horrible year anyway. I mean, I, but let's imagine that uh, that our GPS network were somehow uh, catastrophically uh, taken down by uh, a solar storm or uh, an asteroid that grazed through a large part of it. You would still perhaps have radio beacons, but uh, let's say... Uh, Everything were fried, and and you had a lot of uh, of, of uh, air, airliners that were trying to repatriate uh, people back to their home countries. Could uh, a modern seven eighty seven or Airbus three eighty function without GPS? Uh, is there any way for them to be able to fly and navigate without uh, GPS or inertial guidance or radio? Well, they fly what's called FMS flight management systems that combines GPS with inertial navigation. Uh, if the GPS system went away, they could still do inertial navigation. But again, that degrades not as fast as manual um, dead reckoning. So I guess they could do that. Uh, there used to be another radio nav system called Loran, but uh, we decommissioned that oh, about 10 years ago to save some money. And that provided a radio navigation system that worked up to about 500 miles offshore. Uh, but we've gotten rid of that for cost-cutting reasons. Although I guess Europe is still maintaining it because of their concern of sole reliance on the GPS system. So at least in certain parts of the world, if you put the Loran equipment back in the airplane, you could do that. Okay. Or I guess you could do a dead reckoning. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. All right, so uh, let's we, we've kind of sung the praises of celestial navigation, but let's... Uh, kind of uh, look at the other side of it and run through a, a brief list of a few overwater accidents that are known to have been or perhaps were caused by uh, faulty celestial navigation. So what about the BOAC Hermes aircraft, the G. Alden, uh, which according to the official French ministry's accident report made a belly landing on May 26, 1952 in the desert of Mauritania some 200 nautical miles from the coast after take, taking off a schedule flight on a schedule flight between Tripoli, Libya and Kano, Nigeria and over the desert made a belly landing in a wide depression littered with shifting sand dunes surrounded by rocky escarpments the port wing struck the top of the dune and was torn off and the remainder of the aircraft slewed to the left and came to a standstill without breaking up only six slightly injured persons, but the report notes that the crew was taking shots of the wrong stars, minor stars, not the ones needed to make an accurate determination of their plotted course. 
Thus, the aircraft exhausted its fuel before it could reach an airport. It took off about 11 p.m. from Tripoli and made the crash landing around 8.45 local time the next morning in the middle of the desert. And from the report, it sounds like the captain changed his heading multiple times using up at least four hours of fuel. Heading uh, the final de- the final effort to reach an airport was he was heading for Port Etienne in Mauritania. I have the accident report here put out by the French. I also saw a video or another report that went in a lot much more detail with more pictures and everything. <laughs> I get really angry when I read something like this that people weren't doing their jobs. The captain didn't do his job and the navigator didn't do his job. And I I get really upset. You know, I litigated airplane accident cases for 20 years, and I get really upset when people make real blunders like this. Uh, and I expect pilots to do their jobs, and I expect the flight crew members to do their jobs. But it all started out with the the compasses. There were two compasses aboard the aircraft, one just your normal old compass. And the nice thing about a normal old compass, there's like nothing that can go wrong with them. There is nothing wrong with a regular compass. But they had a more sophisticated compass, one that in, that uh, had electronics connected to it, and you could adjust it for changing variation, which is the uh, difference between true north and magnetic north, like I said before. And so the navigator cranked in the wrong adjustment. And so there are two compasses. One was reading uh, correctly, which happened to be the old reliable, nothing to go wrong with compass. The other one was the newfangled compass. Well, the captain decided that he trusts the newfangled compass and not the old compass. And as the flight progressed, as they flew along, the variation changed. So the navigator would keep adjusting the adjuster on the new compass, which caused it to get further and further off before he realized uh, at the end of what had been happening. So had they just relied on the original compass, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, all aircraft are required to have compass, by the way, just a regular magnetic compass, even if you have some more sophisticated compass on board. And that's the instrument you can trust. Um, so that's where the problem got started. Then the navigator didn't do his job right. Um, he was going to plot fixes like we talked about before. He did his pre-computations and stuck his, his periscopic section up to the hole in the roof and looked for the stars. Well, he was looking at stars, but they weren't the right stars. And he, even he remarked that, well, this one doesn't seem to be working right. Okay. Well, the reason it didn't work right is he looked at the wrong star. So he was, so at, he was actually misidentifying. Uh, he, he, he had a list of the stars. He had a list of stars that he was supposed to take fixes on. And, and he, right. he actually was misidentifying them all along the way. He was looking at different stars. And this, of course, happened because he had the heading wrong. You know, uh, you, you, due to the faulty compass, use, due to the faulty compass, right? Due to the faulty compass. Yep. The, uh, you pre-compute, I told you, you do the computations in advance before you go to take the observations. And that allows you to preset your sextant to the approximate altitude that you expect to see the star and also point it in the right direction, in the right azimuth to see the star you're looking for. Okay. So that's part of the, part of the process. So before you even start uh, looking through the section, you know, which way to point it and what altitude it should be set for. Because he had the, the heading wrong from the from the wrong compass, he was looking in the wrong direction. Okay. Well, he saw some stars. 
Okay, so those must be the stars because I've set this up the right way. But he was looking at some other random stars. The periscopic sextant has a very small field of view, only about three degrees. So you can't see the general pattern of the stars, the constellations, and the things that navigators use to know which stars they're looking at. You look at the constellations, you know, school kids learn the constellations. When you're only looking through basically a small peephole at some stars, you don't see the overall pattern. And that's what this guy was doing. He was looking through his periscope. He saw a couple of stars in the field of view, assumed they were the correct stars because he had done his computations and took the measurements on those. And it turned out they were wrong. And he did this a number of times. His comments were, well, this one star wasn't coming in right. Well, that should have been a big alarm bell that something was screwed up. The captain uh, should have pointed out the front window and say, what star is that? And take an observation on that one. You know, a star that anybody could identify to make sure that they're doing the right one. But they didn't. So the captain didn't insist that the navigator do his job. The navigator wasn't doing his job and checking up on his own computations and things. We found that there was a problem. And they kept getting further and further and further off course. When they eventually discovered the error, the way he'd been setting the compass, they were about 60 degrees off course and way out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, they eventually ran out of gas, crashed in the desert. Everybody survived the crash, but a few days later, the co-pilot died from a hit, from what, an injury occurred when the airplane landed and hit his head. Mm. So he was the only one to die. It took uh, like a week for people to get to them and rescue them and bring them to another uh, oasis. So it was a major problem because the navigator didn't do his job and the captain didn't supervise the navigator. And so these people were literally stuck in the desert uh, in the middle of nowhere for a week before they were rescued? Yeah, actually, I guess it was four days. Four days. Four mm-hmm. days. Okay. They, they had radio contact with the French, I guess, at the nearest town. They came out towards them. They got to an oasis that was about four miles away from the airplane crash and went and got them and walked them back there. But uh, I think they were out there about a week by the time they actually got to bring them back to civilization. Good guy. So, was, uh, so, so uh, do I you did. happen to recall the what the uh, navigator's correct stars would have been? Can you name a couple that we might know? Den of Eltir and Polaris and Vega. Vega did not line up. And also another fix is Eltir and Antares. Okay. Vega didn't come into view. So then uh, let's uh, mention one more, and that is an accident report uh, from the British uh, Civil Aviation Board uh, dated uh, September 14, 1950, which happens to be about right. 70 years to the present day, and it notes the ditching of a DC-4 Transocean Airlines TOA charter flight from Rome to Shannon, Ireland, carrying 49 passengers and nine crew it overshot Shannon, Ireland, and ended up in the North Atlantic, about seven miles northwest of Lurga Point, Ireland, at 2.40 a.m. in the morning local time on August 14, 1949. Uh, but amazingly, there were only eight fatalities. The report notes that uh, accurate hourly positions of the aircraft were not determined or plotted, nor was celestial navigation used as a routine means of position determination Though the stars were visible at all times after sunset. So all the fuel yep. was exhausted. It notes that the captain yep. had retired to crew quarters 
uh, not long after takeoff. It was not even on the flight deck, I assume, for an extended period. Well, they took off from Rome. It was a direct flight, uh, you know, across Italy and France, across uh, the Bay of Biscay, and to make a landfall at uh, Marseille. The end of well, it was, well, they went over Marseille. Yeah, and uh, they thought they were going by Land's End at the south, southwest corner of England, and then the next land should have been Ireland. But the uh, navigator had some radio bearings, and he plotted them, and he he calculated his ground speed wrong. He thought he was going a lot slower than he really was, and uh, uh, going slower than he thought he was, and he didn't take fixes to uh, prove that. The, uh, the nice thing about a celestial fix is what we call a position-finding system. You don't need to know where you are. And if your position is inaccurate, it doesn't matter. A fix gives you an accurate position. Uh, dead reckoning based on your estimated ground speed and heading and all that, it's a position-keeping system, which means you keep track of where you are, but the position degrades over time. And if he had taken a fix with a sextant, he would have found the errors that he was already making. But he was happy, and uh, they saw some land on the on the below them that they misidentified as Land's End, when it, or actually, sorry, they misidentified it as the Cherbourg Peninsula, when in fact it was Land's End. They were already to England; they were no longer over France. Ah. So they thought everything was happy. They just kept on going, and this is interesting too. He picked up the range for Shannon, and I told you the range sends out a beam. Right, yeah. And you can tell whether you're on this beam or not. So he he, he, he picked up the, the radio range beacon from Shannon Airport, uh, which goes right. out in four directions, as, as you mentioned to me earlier. Uh, go ahead. Right. But but the problem with that, there's only the four courses, and you, it's called an AN range, by the way. Uh, it transmits the Morse code A, which is da-da, and the Morse code N, da-dit. And if you're in a position where you're receiving both of those signals with the same strength, all you hear is a buzz because the timing on the da-dit and the da-da are such that they interleave. So we just have a steady tone. And if you're flying along and on the beam and you start hearing ends, da-dit, 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 you know you're to the north of the beam. And if you start hearing da-da, 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 A, you know you're south of the beam. And the N quadrant, the north quadrant, is always north of the station. But the navigator, for some reason, marked on his chart that the N quadrant was south of the station. So as he's flying along, he's hearing the Ns, but he figures, oh, I'm not there yet. I've got to keep going further north, and then I'll intercept the beam. When, in fact, he's already passed the beam in the north quadrant, the N quadrant, and hearing the Ns. So that was a really, really basic mistake with flying the beam. Um, the the beams are always set up so that the end quadrant is north. And so he thought he was okay. He's getting the ends, which he thought many hadn't arrived at the beam yet. When he got to the beam, they were going to turn left and follow it to the airport. But they'd actually gone past there and out in the North Atlantic. And then finally he gets suspicious, takes a three-star fix. Good. He finds out exactly where they are. They turn around to go back to find Shannon but they didn't have enough gas to get there and they ditched in the ocean. Well, listen, let's, uh, let's switch gears. Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Okay. Obviously you are a, a great uh, celestial navigator because you proved that 
when you were only 31 years of age, uh, when you made a solo flight in a single-engine Cessna aircraft, the Cessna 172, when you crossed the Atlantic from Newfoundland to Santa Maria and the Azores, and you stopped there, and then you went on to Portugal. Tell us a bit about this, uh, the pre-planning, what went through your head uh, when you were out there alone, uh, just uh, with the horizon and the ocean below. A friend of mine, another flight instructor, uh, had been working for this company for a while. He gave me a call. He said, uh, do you have a passport? I said, yeah. He said, uh, can you get up to Minneapolis tonight? I said, yeah. He said, would you like to fly across the Atlantic? I said, yeah. <laughs> and went up to Minneapolis, picked up an airplane. And it turned out, I'm going to skip some of the fun part, um, that the owner of the company had eight airplanes that he had to go across. And uh, four of us flew in to Newfoundland with four airplanes. There were already four airplanes that were sitting there, and we had extra pilots with us to fly those four airplanes uh, because the last people had decided not to fly when they got to the end of the lander. Anyway, uh, the airplanes had extra fuel tank because the Cessna 172 does not have enough fuel uh, capacity to fly across the Atlantic. So I had 75-gallon tanks in the wings and a 50-gallon tank sitting on the floor next to me. Anyway, we were... Uh, Supposed to take off the next day, however, uh, I got a call. We had to leave tonight at midnight because the weather was getting bad. So we took off at midnight with four airplanes, and we climbed up through the clouds, and we actually had two groups of four. But anyway, we were flying along with four airplanes, and uh, I took out my sextant and took a, made a, took a fix about an hour after takeoff. And I could see they were actually drifting off course quite a bit to the right of course. The course from Newfoundland to the Azores is about 130 degrees. And we were drifting off course to the right. And uh, I called the boss on the radio. We were talking to each other on the radio. I said, hey, uh, we're drifting off course to the right here. And he said, now, this is your first time doing this, kid. He said, I know what I'm doing. That stuff doesn't work anyway. And the reason uh, we got in a... <laughs> Goodness. Weather briefing that told us we had winds out of the west, so we had to make a correction to the right to counteract that wind. And then another hour later, I get another fix, and it shows us continuing off course further and further to the right. I call the boss up and I say, Pete, we're getting further off course to the right. He says, that stuff don't work. You know, just maintain your heading. And then my engine quit. Oh. And uh, so I had to leave the formation Actually, it's kind of interesting what happens, you know, you're 500 miles out over the ocean at night and your engine quits. But I remember very clearly, I said to myself, huh, that's interesting. And uh, I don't know if you know about flying, the, uh, you know, the airplane will glide, but you have to go downhill. So I lowered the nose to keep the airplane flying, and then you started running again. I said, oh, that's good. And then when I leveled off to maintain altitude, the engine quit again. So I'd lower the nose, the engine would run. Level off again, the engine would quit. So I decided I better keep the nose down so the engine will run. And but now I'm going down towards the ocean down there in the dark somewhere. And uh, the uh, I did did some thinking here. I said, well, you know, I've been using this fuel tank sitting on the floor next to me, and it's probably almost empty by now. And there's probably not enough fuel to make it into the carburetor from here. So when I lower the nose, it lowers the carburetor in relationship to the fuel tank. So the fuel will run downhill to the carburetor, and the engine will run again. So now i got to figure it out. I'm not worried about it anymore. And so I'd get down to about 2,000 feet, 
And then I'd switch back to the main tanks, but I still had gas up in my main tanks, up in the wings, fly back up to altitude, switch on the on the ferry tank. And I did this six times, coming from altitude down to by the ocean, until no matter how far I pushed the nose down, the engine wouldn't run on the ferry tank. So then I went back up and completed the flight on the main tank. But by then, you know, all the other airplanes were gone. Good gosh. And, uh, and we survived. A couple of the airplanes didn't make it all the way to to uh, Santa Maria. They landed at the Navy base at Lodges because they were running low on gas. But uh, so, yeah, so that worked. We made it to Santa Maria. The other guys caught up the next day. And then we flew into Porto, Portugal. And again, you can't miss E for Europe. And Portugal is uh, really hard to miss when you're traveling east. But just to be clear, so in to, other words, uh, just, so, just to be, so just to be clear, you kind of had to do a Lindbergh on, uh, jiggling with the the fuel tanks uh, because you know he had uh, he had some problems with switching between fuel tanks at one oh, yeah. point. So in other words, you were flying a Cessna 172 yep. solo in a group of eight uh, Cessnas on the delivery flight to uh, to Portugal via the Brussels? Uh, yeah. via the, the Azores. Via the yeah. Azores. And uh, first of all, the leader of the group said, hey, you know, this celestial navigation doesn't work. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, yep. uh, it did work. <laughs> and in the meanwhile, your engine cut out and you had to go back and forth up and down from altitude, go back and forth from altitude to, okay. uh, the, for, for gravity to, to make the uh, remaining fuel. and the, the uh, Okay. Go ahead. Well, Cessna was 72 is a high-wing airplane wings on top of the fuselage compared to pipers which have the wings on the bottom of the fuselage call it a lowing airplane uh lowing airplanes since the fuel has to go uphill to get to the engine they have two fuel pumps okay either one will make it work but high wing airplanes uh use gravity feed gravity is very reliable you don't need two gravities you only need one gravity and that always works the fuel runs downhill from the wings where the fuel tanks are downhill to where the engine is and it provides the fuel to the engine. Okay. In this case, with the ferry tank, it was mounted inside the airplane on the floor next to me. It was probably oh, about two feet high. And as the fuel level got lower in that ferry tank, it got to the point that it wasn't high enough above the engine at all to make the fuel run downhill to the carburetor. And that's when the engine quit. And so you you essentially had to go up and down, up and down several times to make sure you used all the uh, fuel in, in the different tanks and you had an extra tank uh, because of the length of the, of the trip. Is that, is that right? Yep. Okay. And uh, yes, indeed. your ce- celestial navigation basically saved you guys uh, from going in the drink because without it, you would have been 290 miles. Uh, you would have been uh, how many miles off course from uh, Santa Maria? We were 292 miles west of, Flores, which is the westernmost island in the Azores, and so you basically saved the you and the you and your colleagues en route. Yeah, I guess I did. And uh, so some of them didn't even make it to Flores; they had to land at an air force base on what's the island? Well, they didn't make it to Santa Maria. They made it to Terceria, where we have a U.S. Navy uh, air base called Lages, L-A-J-E-S, Lages. And they landed there because they were so low on gas. And is that technically and, part uh, of uh, the the Azores? Yes. Oh, okay. There's a string of about eight islands or something there. Okay. Santa Maria is the first one. It's the closest one to Portugal. 
and that's why they use it as a fueling stop for aircraft coming from Europe to the United States. Well, that's, a, that's an amazing story. So what went through your head <laughs> when your engine quit? I mean, did you, did you go into a panic, or did you kind of like take the calculated view, hey, let's work the problem? No, I know exactly what, what I said. I said, huh, that's interesting. That's exactly what I said. I lowered the nose. You do that automatically to maintain flying speed. You have to start going downhill, gliding, to keep the airplane going fast enough. And the engine started again. I said, well, that's good. Level off, stop, lowered the nose, it ran. So the logical thing to do is keep the nose down. So, Gary, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'd like to dedicate this episode to my dear late dad, who served as a navigator on an LST in the Pacific during World War II, and who first explained to me about how he used to navigate by the stars. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or bdormany on my Twitter feed. Gary LaPook, I will all look forward to your future research and this most interesting aspect of our aviation history. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Okay, this is great. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>